0: Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. Today, I speak with Tracy Warson. From modest roots in the Midwest, she rose through the ranks in banking, first at Wells Fargo, then Bank of America, culminating in becoming the first female head of city's private bank in its 200-year history. Like many of the responsible leaders I have interviewed for this podcast. Tracy is an advocate for diversity and inclusion and co-chaired City Women, the bank's global strategy on advancing women as leaders. I speak to her as she is making the shift to a new stage in her career, advising startups in clean energy, food sustainability, and fintech, as well as working towards companies building more diverse boards of directors. Thank you so much for being here today, Tracy. Thank you, Celia. It's my, my pleasure. So I'm going to start with a question that I ask all of my guests, which is, What is responsible leadership
1: and what does it mean to you? Well, I think responsible leadership is really setting a vision uh, and really creating an ability to inspire the team to achieve beyond what they think is possible. And the key part is all while doing so in a respectful and inclusive culture that values everyone's voice.
0: We know that that's a really hard thing to do well. And the research shows that that while diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams, that is only true on the condition that the diversity is managed in an inclusive way. So how have you how what what strategies do you have for doing that well?
1: Yeah, well I um I believe as leaders, first and foremost, you have to model the way. So you can't just speak about the importance of diversity. Um, You really have to take actions around it. And that means, you know, recruiting diverse talent. That means having a, a diverse and inclusive leadership team. So throughout my career, I made it a true commitment to honor all kinds of people, to to surround myself with all kinds of people with different experience and different perspectives. And I have to say, it it works. Um, Generally, the businesses I ran, you know, when I got the right team in place like that, we outperformed year over year. So I think modeling the way is critical. And then, you know, really trying to influence the rest of the company with, you know, your culture that's that's working.
0: Well, and you've done a lot of work throughout your career in that domain, focusing often on um, including women in senior leadership positions more effectively. That can often be a double-edged sword. You know, if you stick your head out too far, arguing for diversity for a group to which you belong, um, sometimes that can have negative consequences for the person who's trying to do it. Did you
1: experience that? How did you manage it, get over it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have always, you know, found ways to build. Uh, or be part of teams that were focused on diversity and inclusion. In my early career, we created an executive women's committee that supported, uh, a lot of us were having children for the first time, and we supported each other in that. I was on the uh, Bank of America's Global Leadership uh, Diversity Committee when I was there, and probably most proudly um, at City Women. Um, I, I co chaired City Women Globally at Citibank. Um, I think. There, there's a bit of a risk, you know, that you're going to be the um, kind of the one pounding the table for change, and that makes people uncomfortable. But I've always had conviction, and I've tried to, you know, when I'm on these committees or leading them, I try to do so with a lot of grace and, you know, humor and fun. Um, I think our real breakthrough at city when it came to diversity and inclusion uh, was when we made my co-chair a man. And that it was—it was just like hello. We used to always be in the room, women talking to women, you know, uh, about issues. And then when um, Jim Coles, actually who ran Europe, Middle East, and Africa for City, became my co-chair, the conversations just changed. And there was much more willingness to listen by the men. There's just half the time it's just this uh, unconscious bias, right? That they don't even know that it exists. So we became really intentional about building a diverse. Um, uh, our subcommittee was 50 percent women, 50 percent men. So really trying to be inclusive. Right. And getting men in the conversation. And that, I think, really helped us. Um, I, I definitely faced a few uh, naysayers or people that were uncomfortable with what we were driving for, like pay equity. Right. Things like that are, are make people uncomfortable. But th- these are the things that's where we need to go. And I'm very proud of, of the work um, that we did at, at city and, and throughout my career. I think we're finally seeing real change happen
0: well it's interesting you used words like discomfort right which which speaks to that it's a threat right actually using hundred percent of the talent pool it can be threatening to some how how did you work to alleviate that threat so that people could be open to the arguments and to change
1: uh well again, I think it's kind of modeling the way. I think the business I was the first woman to run um, City Private Bank in North America in over 200 years of city. So you can imagine there was a wee bit of pressure there for, for me to, to do well in that role. And I, I just feel like you know that was my intention just to model the way to, um, to produce outstanding business results. And then you know how can they argue, right? That what you're doing is the right thing. You no, know, it,
0: yeah, it, it is hard to argue with success, um, and it buys you credibility. Right. right, it buys you credibility, and that that gives you leeway. So let's talk a little bit about your your career history. You're from Minnesota originally, um, and did a degree in business and French.
1: Why French? Oh, that's funny. Well, um, Minnesota. Yeah. And you're from Canada, right, Celia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm almost a Canadian, but <laughs> um, a business in French. Well, I really wanted to learn French. I wanted to live in France. But this is back in the 80s, right, when people didn't quite travel as much, certainly didn't grow up with a lot of money. So I wanted to do something interesting, like work for the State Department or the CIA. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll get a French, a degree in French. And then my father said, you better get another degree uh, besides just French. So it was business administration in French is where I ended up. But, but my intention was to do something global. What cities have you worked in since then? Really, mostly the West Coast and um, New York. My, my first job was with a Japanese trust company. And then a lot of my career was on the West Coast, but had North America oversight. And then with my most recent 10 years at City, that was really a global private bank. I ran North America, but it involved travel throughout the world.
0: I read in one of your interviews about a defining moment that you had as a as a young girl, really wanting to make sure that you could go into a store and buy anything you wanted at any time. I'm interested in that sort of defining moment and what what the other sort of lessons that you really took with you from growing up the way you grew up.
1: Yeah, that was a defining moment for me. Um, Like I said, I I grew up in a family. We didn't have a lot of money. We lived in uh, the suburbs of Minnesota. I have an older brother, an older sister, and my mother is very frugal and would really um, have kind of forced me to wear my sister's hand-me-downs. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but my sister and I are very different people. And, you know, honestly, especially throughout my junior high years, it became um, kind of embarrassed, embarrassing. And I, you know, felt uncomfortable. I wasn't, you know, as cool as the other kids. And... I had a moment. Um, This was actually when we were living in Salt Lake City where um, my mom and I were going shopping and that always meant that I could buy like one shirt or something, you know, and I walked into that store and I said, someday I'm going to be able to walk into a store and buy anything that I want and not even look at the price tag Um, because I was, you know, I was just tired of the of being embarrassed and having that kind of shame. And I had a beautiful family, don't get me wrong, but you know how teenagers can beat other teenagers. And it was just a moment where I knew I was going to have a a financially secure life. And I had this very strong intention around it.
0: Well, I think that I think especially for women, right, who, who rise up in corporations or in professional jobs where they have financial security of their own, I had I had a different but similarly motivating experience where growing up I could see the women who were mothers around me who were financially dependent versus the ones that were not so for me it was seeing this dependence I was like I do not ever want to be in that position yeah um that was a sort of a similarly motivating force even though uh I can't go into every any store and buy whatever I want without looking at the price tag. I, I I have I have an independence that was uh, driven from some those youthful experiences.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so important for young women to think about. No matter what you do, have financial independence, right? Because then you won't be stuck in a relationship you don't want to be in. You know, it's just critical. And I always told my daughters, that's the most important thing. I don't care what you do as a career, but just make sure you have financial independence because there's so much that goes with that. Um, And just to your point there about a little bit about motherhood, too, I think what it kind of evolved for me was my my real two main goals in life was financial security and also to be a great mom.
0: How did you do that? I'm struggling with that. I have financial independence but having this job while being a great mother sometimes seems pretty elusive.
1: Yeah it's not easy that's for sure (laughs) but um, I think you know I, I had certain little rules that I had every now and then like um don't travel for more than two days. Um, When my first child was born, the Internet was just getting started. It was kind of different. We could actually take three to four months off and be really out of the office and present. And so, uh, you know, the times were different then, but I, I... again i think when you create unwavering commitments to yourself and and again my unwavering commitments were financial security and to be a great mom you live by that right and and i think you know there's a lot of different things i did to try to help i i definitely found good help i never had a nanny live with us but i did find a woman that I I kind of coined her as my house manager. And I told her what I really wanted from her was to help my husband and I be the best parents we could be. I didn't want my kids to run to her when they got home. You know, I wanted them to run to me. And I um, so we really designed kind of while they were at school, she would take care of a lot of things for us. And then because I'm on the West Coast and I was in markets when they were young, I could, I worked like from five in the morning till three in the afternoon. So my husband took care of them in the morning and then I was home in the afternoon. And so there were ways that we just kind of try to design our life to be very present for, for the, the kids. That's the most important thing is to be present. And, and I always would tell the leaders on my leadership team that, you know, they would be worried about missing a meeting because their child had a swim meet or something. And I, I would always say, go to the swim meet, you know, or if you're at their soccer game, be at the soccer game. Don't be on your, back in the days when we had Blackberries (laughs) or phone, you know, be present. And so I've, I've tried to kind of live by that. Um, and then always be present for the most important moments of their lives, whether it's getting their driver's license or, you know, first day of school, um, all those kinds of things. I tried to really, uh, be as present as I could. So i I think, as working women, we often work really hard during the day so we can get everything done and then get home and, you know and it's exhausting, but it's also hugely rewarding, especially when your kids grow up and you see the kinds of incredible people that they become
0: i I am so appreciate hearing that because I, I I get asked that a lot by more junior scholars. And often I don't feel like I have a very good answer and often, you know, they see me. I think that's one of the interesting things about COVID, right? Le- managing through COVID and d- doing everything on Zoom, right? I have taught with a sobbing six-year-old on my lap. Yeah. The, the complete blending of work and family life has been um, really challenging as the data show for working women, but also sort of liberating, to have large corporations that were always really resistant to um, to working from home suddenly have to pivot and realize, actually, this can work, yeah. right? I think will have opened up a lot of um, leeway for, for positive changes.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it kind of has humanized everybody, right? I mean, I remember being on conference calls and I would be just terrified if I, if there was a noise in the background and these weren't even video, they were just conference calls and some of them would be six hour meetings or something. And now people, it's like, Oh, the, you know, your dog's walking in the background or whatever, but it's humanized us. We're all, you know, people with families. And so uh, it's, it's very interesting um, how that's changed. And I I will just add my personal experience for, we get a lot of messages from the media that, if we're working women, we're going to be bad moms, completely untrue. And um, we need to tackle that. They're bad messages. It's amazing for me when I was leading big businesses and maybe I'd have a dinner party and have uh, some of my colleagues over and I'd introduce them to my daughters. And it completely changed the way they thought about me. You know? It's like, oh, it's like seeing your teacher at the grocery store or something. You know? but there, it, 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 and then I, I always endeavored to meet their families. And it, it's just, I think it's, that's good leadership is connecting um, on that superhuman level.
0: Well, I'm sure that, that that attention and care that you paid to their personal lives would also bring you a lot of loyalty and, and commitment, right? Because you were seeing people as whole humans with complex lives like we all have and, and re- respecting what they needed to do would get repaid. And I think that there's, there's been historically a fear that giving that inch would mean a negative mile, but actually
1: it means a positive mile. Completely. And I think, um, you know, a good story is when I became CEO of the private bank in North America, our first offsite was in Montreal. So imagine now I've I've gone from being, these were my peers, and now I've been promoted to be the the boss, which is always complicated. Um, But we went uh, and had our meeting there and I'll never forget it. Um, One of the things I wanted to do is really define our values as a leadership team and how we could work together optimally. And the prior uh, leader had used the BlackBerry a lot. And on the weekend, it would be like, call me or something, you know, so you're always having to look at this. And I, I said, how do you all feel about just let's make sure everybody has their cell phone numbers. If there's something urgent, call. But if not, let's just allow those weekends to be time, you know, with your friends and family and and. Uh, I mean, and the sigh in the room was like palpable. People were like, wow, that would be great. Because we have to kind of be realistic. You know, bankers aren't curing cancer. We we can't solve problems on the weekend anyway, right? Uh, the whole system's closed. So, you know, there's a degree of you know, just let's be realistic about what's a crisis and what's not and honor the time on the weekend. And if you want to do emails, go ahead. But we don't expect them to be answered unless, you know, it's urgent. Then you do the cell phone and, and you just pick up the phone and call. And and so anyway, that that it's a small example, but it created a real breakthrough with people feeling respected, like you said, and feeling their whole self was respected, including the time with the family. And it definitely, I think the outcome of that is more loyalty, no question.
0: It's interesting it's not really a symbol, but there's something really symbolic about that type of respect. One of one of my mentors told me years ago that when um her father would go on vacation and this is now, you know, decades and decades ago, he would leave an envelope saying if there's an emergency while I'm on vacation, open this envelope. And inside the envelope was a note that said, I'm sure you can handle this yourself. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Like, yeah. I trust you. Right. I often say around leadership that people need to feel safe, seen, understood and valued. And when we can figure out ways of doing that, then then people sort of relax into the ability to perform.
1: Totally. Totally. And everybody wants to be valued. I, I love that safe, seen, understood and valued. I think of all levels, too. Right. I mean, I've seen situations that were unbelievable where, you know, I would say to a young woman, why didn't you uh, announce yourself on the conference call? She told me because I was told not to talk, you know, okay, what is this nonsense? Right. And so I've seen these kinds of examples. And I that's why I always, you know, whoever I was speaking to, whatever level in the company really tried to honor them and encourage them to use their voice and I think people really appreciated that, and it just seems so obvious to me. But and, and kind of shocking when people aren't aren't valued um, in that way. But I saw it many many times. Well, just before
0: we started the interview, you mentioned that one of the great things about this this stage in your career is feeling liberated. I'm interested in your experience both working in really large organizations and now sort of as a more independent advisor, if you would give your more corporate self any advice right now from this position of increased
1: freedom? Wow. Uh, well, it's so different. Um, I really, it's 35 years of working in large organizations where there's so much structure and and it's pretty myopic, right? You're kind of doing one thing. You're, even if it's financial services, which can have varied parts of it, um, being out of that structure and into a place where I I can learn so many things, whether it's about, you know, fintech or food sustainability or clean energy or, you know, the issues around climate change. It's just this broad awakening. And I guess for me, I I had never even thought about retirement. You know, so and and now I, I just see... I don't think I would change much in the way I I was in the corporate world because I, I always did my best and stood by my values and but the freedom now of not being in that structure and having any any energy around politics or bad behavior all that is out of my life and just this freedom is amazing um, and I I often think women don't think enough about what's possible if they have if they become executives like what they can do after there's so much demand now for women on boards and there's so much work we can do in the in the non world too but it's fun to be in the for-profit world with private companies all the innovation anyway i'm not sure i exactly answered your question but it's it's just so it feels so different but it's really fun well, we have a hundred
0: year long life now. I mean, if we're lucky, right? Which is, which is a pretty long time to, to get to experience lots of different aspects of life, lots of different ways of being uh, professional and working or not working and enjoying other things. So just, just briefly, uh, what professional accomplishment are you most proud of and what do you consider the, the biggest challenge you had to overcome
1: uh, I think I'm most proud that I was the first woman to lead um, City Private Bank in North America, um, and not only lead it but lead it well. Um, we really grew the business substantially. We got a lot of industry accolades, and and we did that while ensuring a healthy and respectful culture. So I, I'm very proud of that. And um, I guess the other one, if I could just add, which is kind of different, was co-chairing City Women and what we accomplished there because i've been on so many committees where not much got done Uh, they were well-intentioned but i really feel like what we did with city women one of the great moments was getting the ceo at the time mike corbett to sign the women empowerment principles of the united nations he did that and then i was able to present at the united nations and encourage other global companies to do the same Uh, so that was a no, those are probably my two highlights, I think that come to mind, well, and you also worked on on pay equity which is
0: a, which is a tough fight
1: oh completely um, it, it was much more than i mean the women empowerment principles that was just kind of exciting because it 's just principles, you know, and if every company could just sign up for that it 's exactly what you 're teaching about. A respectful culture. And um, so that was cool. But you're right. We, we worked on pay equity. We worked on representation goals. We had a lot more scrutiny around if we had an open job, um, it required a slate of the top talent. Um, Anybody could raise their hand for the job. All jobs were posted. So we were kind of tackling the, well, Joe's going to give the job to Bob, his friend. No, instead, it's like, let's really look at who is qualified for this role and who's the right person. We also monitored um, promotion uh, director and managing director uh, promotions. So we really pried a lot of that apart and in constructive ways, you know, that people accepted but pay equity was big city city was the first big bank to uh, really tackle that, and that's uh, the
0: reason I bring it up is I agree principles are absolutely important. Uh, pay equity puts money where the principles are so right it's exactly concrete and um, and in many ways, I think more difficult to actually execute. so congratulations. I'm going to go through a, a series of, of questions now that sort of are intended to allow listeners to get to know you on a more uh, intimate level without, you know, prying too much because I think the, the responses to these types of questions can be revealing of your, of your character and passions. So what is your favorite work of fiction?
1: Uh, I think right now The Overstory. And what makes it so? Oh, it's just an amazing um, book of fables that shows the connectedness of the world, nature and, and humans. It's, it's very interesting. Is that, is that reflective of your interest in clean energy and
0: sustainability?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I also live in Tahoe where the trees are incredible. <laughs> and they just take your breath away. So um, there's something about, yeah, the planet that we just all need to do a better job. And, and it's a beautiful story. Do you have a secret skill? I think one of them. I don't know if it's a secret, but I think having a good sense of humor has served me well because sometimes that's all you can do, right? And if you get angry at everything, it's not going to be productive. So having a good sense of humor and letting things roll off my back when need be. Do you have a personal motto? Uh, Yeah, I think the one I live by the most is gratitude is the pathway to abundance. Oh, I love that
0: yeah sometimes gratitude can be hard i have to say uh, there have been times in the last year and a half when i knew i should feel more grateful for all of my (laughs) immense privilege through the pandemic but
1: it was hard to muster on some days sure that's understandable do you have a favorite word I, i think my favorite word is gratitude i
0: um several years ago made a bracelet that said gratitude to remind me several times a day. Cause I would look down or I'd be typing or whatever. And I would see it um, to try and uh, instill that as a more frequent practice in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What's your favorite way to unwind and does it have to do with living in Tahoe?
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I'm very fortunate to live in Sausalito and, and then have this home in Tahoe that we built 20 years ago. Um, so favorite way to unwind, definitely to be with my my family and friends. Uh, We do a lot of hiking, biking, skiing up here. So those are all pretty critical. And then anything related to self-care like yoga and Pilates, I'm probably not as disciplined with those as I should be, but I have good intentions around doing more of that. Well, and should is such a tricky word.
0: You know, I I find that often we um, should is can be used as ways to beat ourselves up for not doing enough when most of us are doing as much as we possibly can. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so let's uh, look to the future a little bit. Uh, starting by looking at the past, do you have a favorite leader or a leader that you most admire?
1: Well, I, I guess two come to mind. Certainly, Jane Frazier, the now CEO of Citi. Uh, I was fortunate to know her and she actually hired me at City, and I think she's a remarkable woman. She's smart. She's strategic, but she's also funny and um, she can be self-deprecating. She's just a real person. And I think she's going to do great things with Citi um, in the next, you know, the next many years ahead. Um, the other more political I'd say right now would be Joe Biden, just because I feel that he's brought calm and responsible leadership back to our democracy. It, it was scary the past four years, and we'd w- wake up every morning and, you know, read the news and just, oh, my God, you know, but now we're in a in a different, di- just a different state. I mean, he's appointed a very diverse cabinet of respected leaders with relevant, uh, you know, expertise, and he's restoring the faith and confidence in our government. So he's on my mind right now, and I, I don't think of him alone. I think of him and his team, but the... The behaviors are just so much more sane that we all feel a little bit more more secure now I, I i see i'm i'm not american i
0: I don't live there, and there was something about waking up the day after the inauguration that my whole body felt different yeah you know i didn't there was there was a a palpable decreased anxiety knowing that someone who had good intentions right. We're putting the right people in the right jobs. Yes. Yeah, it was it's it's been it's been a relieving period. Yes. Um, globally in that respect.
1: Yeah, and right people, right jobs, that's one of the core core tenets to get right as a leader, by the way, I think. Um but yeah, I, I will tell you that Thursday morning when he was confirmed um as the new president I was in Sausalito at the time in Northern California, and people were honking their hor- horns in the streets, you know, with excitement and relief. <laughs> so it, it's been quite a ride. What do you think the biggest ethical challenges are that businesses will
0: face in the next decade? And how do you think they should be addressed?
1: Well, I think we're still, we still have quite a bit of work to do in terms of, you know, the inequity issues. Uh, and I think, that there's progress being made, but I think if we could get more governments and large organizations, well, all organizations, universities, everyone to really understand the value and criticality of diversity and inclusion, I think it will help uh, all of us do better. Um, I I think HR as a business unit needs transformation in large companies big time um, because they're kind of protecting the old systems. I can go on and on about that. But I think, uh, so I I think it's still the people side and then navigating, you know, technology and how jobs change and, you know, how how do we ensure everybody's got equal opportunity ultimately. Yeah, thank you.
0: I mean, that's a a lot of challenges to face. It is. So what gives you hope for the future then? Well, I think
1: the next generation. I mean, I, I watch... My daughters are 29 and 27 years old, and I see them with their friend groups, and I watch them navigate their careers, and I just feel like a lot of that generation is colorblind um, and really open to all people and cultures. And I think the world's gotten smaller because of the internet. And there's, you know, you 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 tend to fear what you don't understand or, you know, what you don't know. And yet now there's so much access to information about all kinds of countries and people and cultures, et cetera. I I just feel like the next generation is gonna kind of get us back to, you know, the right priorities, better partnerships between men and women as they raise kids. I I just think it's gonna change uh, over time. And that gives me a lot of hope. Oh, thank you for
0: that. Um, I hope you enjoy your time in Tahoe and your, your new career. We really appreciate you coming on.
1: Great. It was my pleasure, Celia.
0: Responsible is a podcast from the center for responsible leadership at Imperial college business school and is sponsored by city created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry who are pronk productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.